0: Uh, if you don't know, after years of traveling around as a musician, which is something I used to do, but before I planted a church, um, before I was even a pastor at all, I worked as a videographer at a megachurch, part of my story. It was a full-on, like, multi-site flashing lights, you know, catered bonanza of a, of a multi-million dollar conglomerate. And honestly, I was grateful to be there. I was pretty excited about it. At the helm of all the video content <laughs> was me. The, the one dude that was shooting, shooting and editing videos for this enormous machine, which is really funny if, if you think about it. It was an interesting few years, to say the least. Eventually, uh, life happened. Uh, some major changes in leadership developed. Um, one pretty central personality was out, and another person was in. Now, this new dude comes in, He's dang near the top of the pyramid from the get-go, so so to speak anyway, and he's calling the shots, as is his job description. And some people are reeling from this change. They're like, my God, that's not how we've always done things. What will become of us? The horror, you know, all that kind of thing. And others were pumped. They were saying, "Heck yeah! Finally, let's shake it up. It's about time we change some things around here." So inevitably, alliances began to form. Some people abandoned ship. Others insisted on drawing our attention backward to the way things were done before. You know, desperate clamoring for what was once was. And this new guy had to get big, so to speak. He had to sit down and tell everyone in so many words, "Listen, I'm the boss now. It's my job, and this is how I do things." And almost immediately, this new fellow was bringing outsiders into the fold, folks that he vouched for, that he had done ministry with or worked with professionally, whatever it might be, and he wanted them on the team. But they were completely unfamiliar and unlike the existing firmly established group that had been there for years. So cliques formed, you know. These new people waltzing in like they own the place. And the veterans were saying, man, we've been here. We've been here for years. These new people, they don't know the lingo. They don't belong here. And if you're wondering where I was in all this, it was really just quietly sitting at a desk going, I just make the videos and barely, (laughs) you know. And, uh, uh, of course, it all sounds terribly silly now and perhaps a bit petty, but to be fair, to have your paradigm uh, for authority and leadership not only challenged but entirely shuffled uh, in a short amount of time can be a jarring experience. Right or wrong, to think of a certain group as those on the inside of what you're doing and others on the outside of what you're doing, only to have those lines suddenly blurred, if not altogether done away with, it can be a really disorienting thing. So, with that in mind, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We have been making our way through a book together. This book happens to be a biography, and the biography chronicles the life of what is easily one of history's most controversial figures, if not the most controversial figure, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. I don't often read biographies myself on account of they are boring. Um, As a novelist, you know, I prefer fiction personally. For me, a novel can be like high art, but a biography can only, at best, you know, put together facts about some person's life. Who cares? Uh, That's just a joke if you like biographies. Apparently, people don't like book humor. But even so, (laughs) a few years ago, uh, I picked up maybe one of the only biographies that I've read enthusiastically. It was uh, the first official biography of one of my heroes, who's uh, Jim Henson, the Muppet guy, if that helps you. Um, as a huge fan, it was an interesting read for a biography anyway. But what struck me about the experience was uh, what goes into assembling a biography for someone who doesn't read them very much. The biography was a gentleman, I mean, the biographer was a gentleman named Brian J. Jones. And he had clearly spent this painstaking amount of time and energy interviewing friends and family and procuring procuring personal effects and poring over journals and footage and business archives. And he references dates and times tirelessly. There's sources that have been footnoted, and then those footnotes have footnotes, and there's witnesses that have been quoted, and then there's footnotes for those quotations. That, we would say, I think, is what makes for a good biography. You feel like, oh, this is reliable. This dude knows what he's talking about. But in the first century, the time in which the ancient biography before you was drafted, things were quite different. Now, I don't mean that they were less accurate or less reliable, not at all, but I do mean that the work of a biographer was about more than just documenting accurate factoids. Matthew isn't simply stringing together details in chronological order. He has an agenda in mind, and he's not at all ashamed about it. He intends to communicate who Jesus truly is with much more than just the surface level story and the facts of what unfolded. So he uses all kinds of things at his disposal. He uses symbolism, he uses numerology, history, the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament. He uses metaphor and allegory, and all of it to communicate with various levels of density that Jesus is not only this historical figure, not only this first century rabbi, but he is the long-awaited king of Israel, God's anointed one or Messiah, who has come to rescue humanity from the fallout of a world that has been ravaged by evil. Now, if you remember in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's biography, Jesus delivers His manifesto, His greatest sermon, His most crucial collection of teachings, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And His audience, we hear at the end of the teaching, is stunned because Jesus doesn't just teach, He teaches as one who has authority in and of Himself, meaning He doesn't just claim to communicate the truth, He claims to be the source of truth. So Matthew, the author of the biography, he understands that this is a big claim to make, and he then depicts Jesus completing the sermon and then immediately walking down the hill and demonstrating His authority. Matthew wants us, the readers, to understand that Jesus can back up the level of authority with which He teaches and the means by which He chooses to do so are actually pretty fascinating. Jesus performs a set of mir- miracles, one after the other, and it begins with three miraculous healings of sickness and diseases, one after the other, and each of which comes as a surprise to Matthew's original audience. So, all that to say, let's read Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. You guys good? Yep. Ready to go? Great. Matthew 8:14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, "'Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go.'" Jesus replied, "'Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man,' one of Jesus' favorite titles for Himself, "'has no place to lay His head. Another disciple said to Him, "'Lord, first let me go and bury my father,' but Jesus told him, "'Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead.'" Tonight's text begins with what is the third of what one scholar calls the outsider miracle. So if you think back to a few weeks ago, the first was a leper or someone with a skin disease. The second was a Roman centurion or a Gentile, not a Jewish person. And then the third is a woman. In the first century, Jewish women were not allowed as far inside the temple as Jewish men. They had their own distinct court, and it was pretty small comparatively. Gentiles or non-Jewish people could only get into the outermost courts of the temple, and lepers couldn't get into the temple proper at all. So imagine for a moment the layout of this temple. No lepers can get beyond the outer wall. Then comes the court of the Gentiles just before the court of women. Now beyond that is something called the holy place. That's where Jewish men only... Um, can go. And then further than that is something called the Holy of Holies, where only one Jewish man, who's the high priest, could enter, and only on one specific day out of the year and one occasion out of the year, and then enter Jesus of Nazareth with power and authority, and he brings down the outer wall and lets the lepers in. Then He brings down the wall of the Gentile court, and the centurion can come in. And then He breaks down the wall of the woman's court and ushers the women forward. And of course, if you know the story, spoiler alert, Jesus is on His way, so to speak, to the Holy of Holies, where He will tear the curtain apart and let everyone directly into God's presence all the time. Now, in tonight's text, the last in the outsider miracles, Jesus heals, as I said, a woman, In uh, the first century Jewish synagogues, women were placed behind screens and in the back, as is still the case in uh, modern Muslim mosques where sometimes the women are even kept in separate basements. Uh, Jewish men traditionally prayed 18 recurring daily prayers. One of them was, I kid you not, a prayer of thanksgiving that they had not been born a woman. Now, you can see that Jesus was at the very least being unconventional. Um, And you can see this all throughout the ministry of Jesus and the way that he prioritizes and favors and uplifts women. But there's more to it than that. Let's work through the story line by line. It begins like this in Matthew 8, verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. Now, the fever in Greek is about as nondescript as the paralysis in the previous story that the uh, Roman centurion servant was suffering with. We tend to think of a fever as quite low on the serious scale in terms of illness, but this may have been more than just a common cold. She could have been incredibly sick, we don't know. Other than that, she was bedridden and she was unable to participate in the commotion that was taking place in her own house. Now, notice in the story that what takes place is actually an unsolicited act of miraculous healing. In both, Mark and Luke's gospel, the same story appears, and Jesus' healing touch is requested, but Matthew has this theological agenda in mind, and he deliberately omits this detail. See, in Matthew's version, nobody asks. Not the disciples, not Peter, not his wife. Matthew does not mention the woman herself asking Jesus or praying to God at all. So why in Matthew's gospel would the reader assume that Jesus heals her? And the answer is because he wants to. Healing, I think we can probably all agree, regardless of where you're at in any experience of healing or lack thereof, is a terribly complicated thing. At City, we, we believe very much that Jesus was and is in the habit of healing sickness and disease and injury from headaches to brain tumors, broken bones, broken hearts, the whole gamut. I've seen it in my own life firsthand uh, in a miraculous sense and in an ordinary sense. I've seen it right here in this building during our gatherings. We believe that Jesus' desire, His heart, so to speak, His disposition is always for healing, meaning that we don't think we have to wander or guess whether or not Jesus wants to heal. We believe that's always the case. He wants to heal. Of course, we're not so dense that we haven't noticed. Many people, despite our best prayers, are not healed. So as in all of life we recognize a tension between what God wants and what often happens that is set against God's desire. God desires good but the world is often riddled with evil. God has built into creation a very real freedom and as a result the world has been broken by our own failure by the work of evil forces in the spiritual realm and we are sort of caught in that crossfire. And yet one beautiful shaft of light la- shaft of light and hope cuts through the darkness of that reality in this story in particular. Why did Jesus heal Peter's mother-in-law? Because He wanted to. He wants to heal. There are times, even in the story of the Scriptures and in our own experience, when faith factors in healing. Um, There are times when asking and the way that we ask factors in healing, times when outside contingencies factor in healing, but then there are other times where God simply wants to heal and no one even asks and He just does it because He wants to. And the uniqueness of Matthew's focus on this account doesn't end there. In, in the other accounts, the authors note that after being healed, Peter's mother-in-law stands up and serves them, meaning everyone who's in her home. But in Matthew's account, he writes that she stood up and began to wait on Him. And Why does that matter? Because Matthew wants us, the readers, to see that this woman offered nothing in order to release the generous gift of Jesus' healing. It happened in reverse. Jesus heals first, no one asked, and then she serves him, not the other way around. And don't read the modern ongoing struggle with sexism and inequality into this text. This is about Jesus defying the devaluing of women, actually, and about one woman who responds appropriately. It's not um, to be a woman who waits on a man, but to be a disciple who waits on a master. And in all three of these carefully crafted and thoughtfully arranged healing narratives of the outsider miracles, the leper, the centurion, and the woman, Matthew wants us to see something beautiful. Scholar Dale Bruner, in his commentary on Matthew, says it like this, Matthew, in my opinion, has a theme he wishes to carry through in his specially arranged series of three healings, namely that Jesus is more eager to help than we realize and particularly eager to help outsiders that He will move beyond all religious, racial, and sexual walls and help those who are perceived respectively as unclean, unworthy, or unequal. The story goes on, verse 16. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to Him, and He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. Matthew specifically mentions that Jesus is able to complete effective exorcisms (laughs) with a word. Why would he say that? Because Matthew is bringing a really important motif to beautiful climax. If you think back to Jesus' cleansing of the leper a few weeks ago, it's actually a single word in Greek when he touches an untouchable person in order to restore them to the community, uh, cure their skin disease, all that. The centurion says to Jesus, Say the word, and my servant will be healed. And now, with a word, Jesus drives out even evil spirits. Matthew wants us, the reader, to see the connection between sickness and and what we call spiritual warfare. And he wants us to be overcome by the beauty of Jesus' authority over both things. Exorcism, which is just the act of driving away evil spirits, was not unique to Jesus. Uh, We have ancient sources from around the time of Jesus and before, from other rabbis who performed exorcisms as, as well. And believe me, it is not with a word. Look at this example from an ancient Jewish historian called Josephus. The manner of the cure was this. He put a ring that had a foot of one of those sorts ventured by Solomon to the nostrils of the demoniac, the person who has a demon, after which he drew out the demon through his nostrils And when the man fell down immediately, he abjured him to return into him no more, making still mention of Solomon, that's important, and reciting the incantations which he composed. And when Eleazar would persuade and demonstrate to the spectators that he had such a power, he set a little way off a cup or basin full of water and commanded the demon as he went out of the man to overturn it, and thereby to let the spectators know that he had left the man. And that's an excerpt. It actually goes on for quite a bit. Um, but this stands in stark contrast to Jesus, another Jewish rabbi who simply does it with a word. Matthew wants us to see Jesus' authority over sickness extends out into the spiritual realm as where? Well, into what we call spiritual warfare, which are irrevocably connected ideas to Matthew. For Matthew, sickness and suffering are not imposed by God. They're not God's will at all, actually, but the work of someone that the New Testament calls the devil or hasatan, the Satan. Of course, This worldview is not unique to Matthew's or the authors of Scripture. The first disciples of Jesus, the earliest church fathers, believed the same thing, which here gets articulated in Acts, I think, beautifully. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and He went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with Him. For Matthew, Jesus' work in healing... The sick is not dissimilar to his work in casting out demons. And to explain them both, he calls upon a text from the Hebrew Scriptures and from the prophet Isaiah. Look down at Matthew 8, verse 17. This was, meaning all this healing and casting out demons, was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Now, chances are one or two of you may be familiar with this passage from Isaiah, but you've probably heard it used as a reference to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, meaning it's is, it is talking about the cross. Now, given that we tend to think of this passage from Isaiah as referring to Jesus' work on the cross, we have to ask, what exactly has Jesus, has Jesus taken on or carried prior to the cross? And Matthew believes that Jesus was taking on and carrying away sin and suffering before His ultimate victory through death and resurrection. The work that God has done in Jesus, not only to pursue us but to identify with us and to know our pain, our sickness and suffering in order that He can take it on Himself and do away with it. This is not something that only occurred to Jesus when He arrived at His execution. Oh, hey, while I'm here, I can deal with all that stuff. The cross may indeed be the most accurate, most beautiful, and most full picture of the depth of God's loving character, a God who would rather die for His enemies than to kill them. But God has always been that way. It did not happen after the cross or at the cross and only at the cross. Jesus was taking on our pain, our sickness, prior to His victory over them in full. Why does that distinction matter at all? Because I think it allows us to see and to understand that this, who, this is who Jesus is, meaning this is who God is. He did it then, He continues to do it now, and people react to such a thing. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. It says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, meaning more and more people are beginning to gather up as he's doing all this cool stuff, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. We've got to get out of here. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replies, of course, with something weird. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, notice in the story, Matthew's actually not terribly interested in the two men who approach Jesus in the specific sense. What I mean is that we get nothing in the way of specifics. And Matthew doesn't even mention whether or not they consider or accept Jesus' challenge. The point is this, Jesus is confirming the authority with which he taught via his actions. And here stands this incredibly magnetic, provocative figure who has miraculous power and authority that's on full display to crowds of people, and some folks want to take up with Jesus. It really makes perfect sense. And now Jesus is reinforcing what he's already done in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, yes, absolutely, come and follow me, but wait, it will not be easy, which makes me think of Luke Skywalker's words to Master Yoda in uh, what is uh, number five of my top ten favorite films of all time, The Empire Strikes Back. Luke, eager to apprentice Yoda, exclaims to him, I'm not afraid, and Yoda replies by saying what? Anyone? Where's Scott? You will be. Thank you. Bennett, was that you or did it originate? Okay, you guys all participated. You will be. Yeah. Thank man. Sanctification over there. <laughs> yes, I'm not afraid. And Yoda says back, you will be. Jesus, who is infamously horrible with PR, is seemingly dissuading people who are eager eager to follow him. Yes, follow me, but it will not be easy. In his commentary on this passage, scholar R. T. France writes this: Jesus' response expressed both the uncompromising authority of the demand Jesus makes on his followers and the radical change of lifestyle with which such following must involve. Now that Jesus uh, is first approached by a certain scribe, the text says, that's kind of noteworthy if you know anything about the story. With a few exceptions, most of the scribes we meet in Matthew's Gospel are not fans of Jesus at all. And Jesus speaks of their entire group with what is at best a critical tone. But here is a scribe who shows up and he seems to show great interest in following Jesus. But let's look a bit closer. The scribe addresses Jesus with the Greek word didaskalos, which your Bibles rightly translate as teacher, and scholars suspect that Matthew is up to something here, and this is really interesting. Let's get nerdy for just a second. See, Matthew, not unlike Jesus himself, is constantly highlighting the dichotomy between who he identifies as disciples, followers of Jesus, and everyone else whom he calls the crowds. And one, ma- one method that Matthew employs to accomplish this is even in the way that people address Jesus. Last week, we talked about this incredible gesture of a Roman centurion who comes to Jesus and he addresses Him with the title, Lord or Master. And that's noteworthy because that is the title always used by those on the end with Jesus. His disciples always call Him, in Matthew's gospel anyway, Lord or Master. Um, Look at, uh, or, or those on the outside, on the other hand, use another title. Have a look at just a few examples among many. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. In Matthew 19, it says, Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Later in Matthew 11, or earlier in Matthew 11, it says, Then the Pharisees went out, laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians teacher, they said. In fact, and those are just a few examples, there's only one character who's on the end with Jesus' group of disciples who ever refers to Jesus as teacher in Matthew's gospel. Look at this. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord, Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, rabbi or teacher. That's cold, Matthew. I guess the wounds were still fresh at the time of writing, I suppose. And here, this particular uh, scribe, though he shows an interest in Jesus' uncharacteristic of his group, because most scribes don't seem to like Jesus, is perhaps not an interest in the true demands of authentic discipleship, and that's Matthew's subtle way of telling us. In fact, the scribe's pledge itself seems to indicate that might be the case. The NIV renders the pledge Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But some scholars argue that may be a a bit misleading. The phrase is more literally, I will follow you wherever you may be going away to, which is probably more like, hey, where are you headed? Mind if I walk with you or travel to the other side of the lake with you? Either way... Jesus presents him with the actual stakes of long-term apprenticeship. And Jesus' reply isn't uh, intended to suggest he's without a home in the traditional sense. We already know that he had a home base set up. It might have been at Peter's house. And during his travels, Jesus is often depicted as seeking out hospitality and lodging with other people. Uh, The point Jesus is making is to draw a parallel between the unpredictability of his lifestyle and the forfeit of promised comfort and security in becoming a disciple, meaning, Though Jesus did have a home base, He crashed at people's houses. These things were not guaranteed, and it stands to reason He often went without them. Similarly, to follow Jesus in the big scheme of things means a relinquishing of certain comforts and securities that one often takes for granted. Or in simpler words, discipleship is very costly. And the scribe is further contrasted by the next to address Jesus in the scene, who Matthew describes specifically as another disciple and who does address Jesus as Lord. And he seems to have a pretty reasonable request, which is to bury his dead. In fact, for Jews in the first century, burial of a deceased loved one was a really important thing. It was accomplished in the first 24 hours following death. And then there were subsequent ceremonies that could last for up to a week. Uh, The arrangements were the responsibility of the eldest son, especially in the event of a father's death, and they were to take priority over all other commitments, including daily prayer, which is a huge deal. So this fellow may be asking for what is a brief postponement and for what has to be one of the most understandable reasons of all. Why the heck is Jesus so harsh? After all, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, He, of all people, should understand this man's obligations. Some scholars note that if this man is out on the road greeting Jesus as he passes, rather than keeping vigil at his father's body, which would be expected of him, maybe he's using a well-known idiom to describe his responsibilities as a son as long as his father is still alive, meaning it's more likely that he's saying, hey, when my dad's dead, I'm all yours. Either way, Jesus' response flies in the face of cultural norms, especially given that He refers to those who, have, who fulfill the responsibilities of burying the dead in either sense as being dead themselves. And it does appear that Jesus intends to shock and to provoke, but He does so with a good cause. To explain, I want to give you for the second time in my career as a teacher of the Bible, uh, Chandler Bing. Now, what I mean by that is that in context, these guys are grappling over how these girls want their apartment back, they don't want to give it back, so they offer them basketball tickets. And uh, Joey really wants to take the basketball tickets. And Chandler is saying, listen, that's not worth it. So he has to say something extremely provocative to shock Joey into understanding what the stakes are. Similarly, this gentleman comes up to Jesus and says, look, I'm ready to go with you. I'll go with you right now. And Jesus says something so shocking, so provocative to say that, listen, this is going to cost you more than you are prepared to pay. He intends to shock with the gravity of how the centrality of discipleship supersedes everything and demands more than our other obligations, even really good ones, our other loves, our other plans, good and bad. And those that linger in, the del- in delay uh, in the face of discipleship, it's like they're dead. Let them hang back with their dead things, Jesus is saying. Again, this from scholar R.T. France If this is what authority not unlike their scribes involves, which is what Jesus seemed to teach with at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, most people would not want anything to do with it. The kingdom of heaven apparently involves a degree of fanaticism which is willing to disrupt the normal rhythms of social life. Jesus can hardly have been surprised that true discipleship remains a minority movement and that popular enthusiasm for his teaching and healing generally stop short of full discipleship. Whew! Okay, it's a lot of Bible. How are you guys? Still awake? Still with me? Great, thanks. Before we sing, before we take communion, I want us to consider a few implications from tonight's text. Now, think back to that silly story that I told about new leadership at a megachurch, and think of that in light of tonight's story. This, to me, is particularly striking in the midst of what can only be described as a wildly divisive season in modern America. Um, If you just even think back to a few months uh, ago and how things have begun to escalate and change in the, the pressure cooker of the social vitriol, Uh, The election of Donald Trump following a leaked tape in which he brags about the sexual assault of women, cranking the heat in what was already a pressure cooker of sexism and misogyny on a national level, an avalanche of ensuing sex scandals revealed predators from Bill Cosby to Harvey Weinstein, Uh, the Me Too movement, the marches, the protests, political vitriol carries on, ensuing legal action against predators, ensuing legal action against refugees, ensuing legal action against immigrants, bans, more protests, near constant news of police brutality against black men and women, often without consequence for white officers, amplifying racial discord in a country built on the backs of slaves, more marches, more protests, riots, violence. And in all of this, fear of the outsider increases, as does disdain for the enemy. And isn't it incredible how Jesus continues to be as relevant as He is controversial two millennia after the fact? Jesus is like that new boss who steps in and says, listen, I'm in charge now, and things look differently when I'm in charge. And to the horror of many, He opens the doors wide, inviting newcomers to the table, and it's all the wrong people. We are a country divided over issues of welfare and health care, who contributes to society, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, and here is Jesus who reaches out to touch an unclean, diseased, alienated man with nothing to offer. In a country of hostile discord over the alien and the immigrant, a world where the line between race and equality is as stark and ugly as it has ever been, we read of Jesus who steps outside of the Jewish family to hold up a Gentile as the example of what great faith looks like. In a country plumbing the depths of what it means to loathe the enemy, the oppressor, the powerful, it's Jesus who points to a Roman military officer and says, now here's a guy who gets it. In a country where the idea that women should be treated equal to men and that centuries of historical discrimination might be something worth considering is an idea we not only have to mention but argue about, Jesus steps into a world even more backward in its sexism and he breaks a long list of taboos to reach out and heal a woman who doesn't ask because he wants to. And what I'm getting at is this, if Jesus favors the outsider, so do his apprentices. I understand that the cultural climate is complex, I understand that the political landscape is complicated, but Jesus favors the outsider and the oppressed and his apprentices are called to follow suit. Last summer, a famous movie theater in Austin, Texas, known for its really uh, wild themed events, offered a single screening of the Wonder Woman film, which was open to women only, an all-girl showing of Wonder Woman. Of course, you could read between, between the lines, but no outward political statement was given, it was just that. Uh, ever the lover of movies uh, and a, you know and of nerdy movie things, I thought, "Wow, what a fun idea! I love themed screenings." I can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't go one way or the other, but um, but of course, within moments of this announcement, there came a predictable outrage from some men who felt like they had been slighted by not getting to go to this one screening of Wonder Woman. So uh, some of them began to like you know uh, gather up online and strategize a way to crash the screening by claiming to identify as women. To which the theater uh, in question publicly replied, hey, thanks for your money, and thanks for working to get in touch with your feminine side. And I use this ridiculous story as an example of a general disposition so prevalent in our culture in which something is triggered in certain individuals to feel defensive against and to push back against the valuing of the undervalued, to stand up and say, hey, wait, wait, what about me, what about me? And the long and depressing story of human history there are peoples and groups who have long been the target of certain injustices and oppression, while others decidedly less so. And that's just the way it is. It doesn't really surprise me, frankly, that some men are afraid of an all girl screening of Wonder Woman. Um, or it doesn't really surprise me, frankly, that some white people are afraid or defensive about a march or a hashtag but that there is such thing as like a a men's rights movement or an all lives matter rebuttal hashtag. It's depressing, sure, but it's not really surprising. But it boggles my mind that some of them claim to be disciples of Jesus. The rabbi who touched the leper, celebrated the Roman centurion, healed Peter's mother-in-law. If we are to practice the way of Jesus together, we must become a community of faith that favors the outsider and the oppressed, and who loves our enemies at the same time. If Jesus is your authority, then he stands high above any political affiliation or personal insecurity that you have, and you need to hear this. I need to hear this. I walk around my neighborhood, um, not far from here, on the way to the church, and I see all these signs up in lawns, you know, the ones that say, like, in our America, love wins, it looks like a flag, and it goes on to list some values that are typically associated with the political left. And the sentiment is great, actually, but the problem as I see it for disciples of Jesus is that we tend to think that we and Jesus have the same idea of insiders and outsiders meaning based on your upbringing or your social context or your political leaning, you may assume that Jesus shares your paradigm of who is oppressed and who should be shown special value and who is the oppressor, who should be brought down from their seats of power. And the problem with this assumption is that Jesus will always let someone in that makes you go, oh, Jesus, not them, not them. Because Jesus values the poor, absolutely, that much is undeniable, in keeping with the God of the entire scriptures, he values the poor. But then he steps out and he asks this criminal traitor of a tax collector who steals from the poor to come and follow him and be his disciple. Jesus teaches enemy love and nonviolence, what we call pacifism, peacemaking. And then he asks this murdering religious zealot to follow him and be not only his disciple but one of the twelve. Jesus cares for the oppressed in a special, specific way, but then he points to a Roman, the oppressor, and he says, Man, what great faith this guy has. No matter where you stand, how backwards or bigoted you are, or how open minded and tolerant you imagine yourself to be, chances are you don't want everyone in. There's someone you do not want in, and Jesus does. He wants everyone in. He wants the right and the left. He wants the right and the wrong side of history, so to speak. He wants the oppressed, and he wants the oppressors. He wants them in the kingdom of God as a part of God's family. And the question we have to ask is, can you handle that? And really, that's the question, isn't it? I mean, who is Jesus? Can you be dissuaded from following Jesus by Jesus himself? There are times when I think of us, you know, that, meaning disciples of Jesus, not unlike the crowds. You know, just about anyone can find something to love about Jesus, which is always funny to me when people are like, you oh, know, Jesus, I hate Jesus or whatever. I'm like, really? I mean, what? What do you not like about Jesus? The fact that he favors the poor, that he, you know, overvalued the poor and the press, that he reached out to uplift women in a time where they were looked down on, that he healed, that he had mercy, that he loves everybody. It's his whole thing. What do you not like about Jesus? Um... But, you know, just about anyone can find something to love in Jesus. There's a reason that so many people were drawn to Him then and that they are now. And when you find that thing, whether that's His love, His compassion, His miracles, you know, you have some kind of incredible experience, God speaks to you, whatever it might be, we come running, right? True willingness to follow Him. They would say, oh, well, let me just finish this one thing. Or wait, uh, how hard will this be exactly? Or, hang on a minute, who, who all are you letting in? Because this is getting really weird, the crowd that you're as, assembling. And Jesus intends for us to understand the authority that He has in mind. It's not a bait and switch. Everything else must be subsumed into our commitment to apprentice Jesus. That means your plans for the future, your fears and your frustrations, your allegiances, your priorities, your passions. And inevitably, if you decide to take up with Jesus, some of those things won't make it. So the question that you have to ask is, when you learn this, when you learn that to follow Jesus, this has to be laid aside, this person gets in, this has to be given up, will you still follow him?